Hello, this is Julia Albert, one of the hosts of Iconocast, which is the companion podcast to Iconoclast Collective, Western's arts and culture publication. Today we're really fortunate to be hearing from Taya Kachigan, Western's current president for the Indigenous Students Association. And before we start, I would really like to acknowledge that Western University is located on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lenapewak, and Atawandaran peoples. And with this, we strive to respect the long-standing relationships that Indigenous nations have to this land, as they are the original caretakers. And we acknowledge historic and ongoing injustices that Indigenous peoples endure in Canada, and accept the responsibility as a public institution to contribute toward revealing and correcting miseducation, as well as renewing respectful relationships with Indigenous communities through our teaching, through our research, as well as this podcast. So thank you so much for being with us, Taya. Is there anything you'd like to add to this land acknowledgement? Um, yeah, I'll just acknowledge um, the neighboring communities, um, Chippewa of the Thames, Oneida of the Thames, and Muncie Delaware Nation. Yeah, I'll just acknowledge those also. Thank you so much. So to get started, the, the theme for this term's iconoclast uh, collective is uprooted. What does the, ro- the word uprooted or this theme of uprooted kind of signify to you? Um, while you were speaking, I kind of thought of uh, uprooted as like the impact of colonialism and how it uprooted so many peoples and ways of life, really. So that's how kind of I kind of connected to that word. <laughs> right. And I know you've been the cultural coordinator and are now the president for Western's Indigenous Students Association. And you kind of described Western's strong Indigenous community as one of the reasons you chose to study here. Has this connection to uh, this community and your heritage kind of give, rooted you in a sense? Yeah, I'm a visitor to this territory. I'm a, my people are originally from James Bay and then I grew up in Thunder Bay. So I was nowhere near home coming to Western, so I really found community through the Indigenous Student Center and through the Indigenous Student Association. Right. It made a huge impact on my education. I don't even know if I would have stayed at Western if it wasn't for the people I met through these organizations. So I'm very grateful. Amazing. And is there are there still ways of that feeling uprooted and kind of removed or dissociated in other aspects of your life? Um, well, I did uproot my life to come to Western. Um, it's about a 15-hour drive from Thunder Bay to London. Wow. It's about the same distance to Moose Factory, which is um, my home community. So definitely, um, I remember in my first year, actually, when I was struggling um, with this distance and with trying to settle into London, I had a cultural counselor actually tell me that my spirit misses the land. Wow. So that's kind of where I started realizing um, the spiritual connection to land and how much of an impact it has, you know, just with my everyday life. So that's something that I've experienced since I came here. Wow. Very interesting. And um, you study psychology and Indigenous studies. And you s- you've mentioned, I've, I've heard you say that this gives you an ability to decolonize psychology. So what did you mean by kind of decolonizing psychology specifically? And then how would you apply this really useful technique and critical Mm -hmm. technique in the future in your work or in your life? Yes, so I decided to take psychology after working for my tribal council in the Shinobiaski Nation and I worked in our um, crisis department. So I saw the harm that can be done when Um, psychologists and counselors are going into community with no knowledge of I guess um, where this hurt is coming from or how the community is structured and just I guess how indigenous people can have other ways of healing so I double majored with indigenous studies so I could also 
know more about the history of not just my own people, but all, not necessarily all the Indigenous peoples of Canada, but some courses really do cover that. Mm. And so I could, in a way, yes, decolonize how I would want to practice psychology. So that's kind of how I fell into really starting to study land-based learning and healing and trying and really trying to find those connections um, from how the land can really heal. And that's something I'm really focusing my studies on now. Yeah. Incredible, yeah. You're a part of also the Head and Heart Fellowship Program, which allows Indigenous students to study under uh, different professors at Western. And you've kind of studied Indigenous knowledge and ways mm -hmm. of knowing. And you've been working on this land-based curriculum that you mentioned and kind of uh, implementing that in different universities across Canada. So could you describe that project? So this summer it was about a three-month fellowship through the Head and Heart, which is a new program through Research Western and in partnership with um, a couple other departments at Western, and it's funding to um, give Indigenous students opportunity to research under professors and I guess kind of learn how to do research, but also it gives them a little bit of space to decide what areas they can research. So. I decided to research land-based learning. I did this under um, Arlene McDougall. So this fellowship actually extended into a Global Minds Fellowship, which I'm currently in right now. And that's kind of, I guess, about looking at disruptive ways of, um, he I guess, working in the mental health field and how we kind of go about that. So I do an Indigenous perspective in that way through this work. Um, so I am currently in the process of looking at land-based learning and where it can fit into post-secondary institutions. This kind of came to me because um, mm. my dad, he's actually, um, he works for um, Dennis Franklin Clamarty, which is a high school in Thunder Bay. It's just for Indigenous students. Mm. And I saw um, how they've been developing their land-based learning and the huge impact it has on students. And they actually have a traditional week, which I was just actually in Thunder Bay for to visit. And I visited one of their sites where they were building cabins for students to use during these hunting breaks. It was really amazing to see that. I want to see how it can fit into post-secondary in institutions in that way. Because through my research, I also kind of learned how when this is done in secondary schools, that students have higher engagement and higher attendance levels. And I think also um, that it helps them spiritually and mentally because that's all the ways that the land kind of encompasses. Absolutely, yeah, you've mentioned the spirit element too and alongside those health and um, mental and spiritual benefits would you say there's also an environmental awareness and an appreciation that comes with lear land-based learning mm -hmm. does this is this a, a potential tool for fueling climate action or environmental justice do you see a connection there? yeah I've seen actually a lot of uh, movement recently towards people starting to look to indigenous peoples for how we can mm -hmm. take on climate action I've actually I think colonialism is really why we're in the state where we are with the climate. Um, we were, it's just so industrial and it didn't really ever think of how we're impacting the land. While indigenous people, we think of ourselves as caretakers of the land. And even our language is so just deep rooted in the land and that's really, um, we have just a higher appreciation. We know it's a reciprocal relationship. So that's why today um, indigenous people still have these beliefs and that's why, you know, UCS fighting pipelines and um, resource extraction because it's true, it, it's harmful to our land and we're really not in a place now where we can take this lightly and we really have to start taking action. So it's amazing actually to see um, like young climate activists like Autumn Pelletier, who's being um, not just nationally, but all around the world starting to be recognized for her work um, for protecting the water. 
So it's things like that. Um, then just people's were, I think, overlooked at one point, but now people are starting to really see where we have a place in this fight. Right. And um, have you found since being at Western, like you've moved from Thunder Bay, that you're, you've become less connected to your natural environment? Yeah, I definitely feel that. Um, I know that um, we're really lucky that we have, like, um, that Western's campus is, like, very beautiful. We have trees, and we're, we actually are right on the Thames River, but, you know, that river is also very polluted. Yeah. And it's kind of different because when I'm home, I'm so used to hunting and fishing and just always going out and hiking. Mm. So it's something I sem- that's something I definitely lost by coming to London. And I'm still trying to find in a way, I guess. I think that's also why it's close to heart trying to bring more land-based programming to Western because I think that's something that's lacking right now. I know, especially since we have an Indigenous Studies program and an Indigenous Student Center, I think there's really opportunity for there to be more of that. What would the land-based learning, like, do you have an idea of what it might look like if it were to be implemented at Western? Um, Well, something really exciting, actually, is that we have a new building coming in. It's an Indigenous learning space, and it's being the education library is being renovated for this space so I sit on the committee for that and one thing that I noticed not just myself but a lot of people are pushing for is for an outdoor classroom and that isn't necessarily it's a small part I guess and I guess just being outdoors while learning but I think that's a really big step that the university is taking and that should be built by next year which is really exciting and also we want to have a garden and I really want to have traditional medicines in it because I also really am interested in traditional medicines and I do medicine tea workshops here. So that's also something that's really exciting is maybe teaching students how to work a garden and how to plant their traditional medicines. I think that's huge. I know one thing I really want ISA to do this year is how to traditionally tan a hide. I think that's what I would really love to happen. We're trying to make that happen this year. But it's just things like that. It's um because along with these things come teachings and I think it's also has a space in education. Because, you know, for example, when you're learning how to, tie a hi- how to tan a hide, like maybe you're going into community. So you're getting out of London and you're meeting community members. And then you're, you're um, understanding like that relationship with the animal and how the an- animal basically sacrifices its life for you. And it's just a relationship also of respect. But I think that's also examples of where land-based learning kind of has re- a lot of different aspects. Absolutely. Would you see, this would be a course or a, pr- a program kind of, geared towards students in Indigenous studies? Or would you Mm -hmm. see this kind of as something that maybe could be for all students studying at Western or maybe something that should be a mandatory course for all students at at the university Mm -hmm. level? Yeah, I'm still really trying to figure out what it's going to look like and if it can even be a course. But I think right now it would start off as priority to Indigenous students and then, but I think really all students could benefit from it because like I said, a lot of us are really just disconnected and like that's why a lot of people are inactive in this i guess fight against climate change and right. because like climate change is really because of humans and how we've just basically been disrespecting the land and taking what we want and not um giving back not cleaning up not doing our part so i think if more people understood and had this connection with the land i think that would really be huge and make a huge impact absolutely it's interesting you mentioned kind of the fight against climate change. And I was recently having an interesting conversation with someone, a student I met, Sam Wong, at the Toxic Tour. And he kind of said he mm-hmm. hates that language of combating climate change or fighting it because mm-hmm. it kind of disassociates humans from um, nature. And it's like two different things. And that leads to my other, my next question. So 
There are kind of two main ethical frameworks that I've spoken to with my profs about in environmental philosophy. So the one involves our moral responsibility to other humans whose health and well-being and ability to reproduce may be affected by climate change. And then there's the other major framework which emphasizes our moral responsibility to nature in and of itself, which would suggest that we ought to take actions to restore and protect nature regardless of what this involves for humans, Mm -hmm. whether that means stopping reproduction and stuff like that. So from what I've read, it does seem like indigenous perspectives on environmental ethics resist such a dichotomy between humans and nature, but rather see our moral responsibility to both of those things as kind of an interconnected issue. Do you think that any of these ways will bring us uh, closer to dealing with climate change in an effective way? Yeah, I don't think I don't think there should really be a disconnect between um, kind of people and nature because, you know, like we say Mother Earth because really that's our mother and she provides for us and gives us everything we need and in return we should be taking care of her. So I think just even looking at it that way, um, but also I think it can be powerful when you're thinking of how climate change is affecting people. I know that we're not necessarily starting to see it now, but I know for example my northern community, um, we have a winter road and for that winter road, that's really the only access when we can get supplies up, especially for the ones that are even more north. Um, my community's Miss Factory and my mother's is Kasechewan. And Kasechewan is kind of known for um, having a lot of problems. They don't have clean drinking water. They have to be evacuated every year because of flooding. And in return, they have poor housing. So for example, with a winter road, that's the only time we can bring in supplies to build new houses and to basically rebuild um, what's lost every year through the flooding mm. and that's a whole other actually discussion on how that community, sh- community should be relocated but mm. so now we're having our winter r- road for shorter periods of time and what's that going to look like in the future right. so that's actually really huge for us and also you know our environments are changing northern communities you know I see in BC like the salmon aren't running like they used to and in return their bears are starving and even in my community we never had polar bears and now every year we're starting to get polar bears because they're starving and they're coming more south because they need food. And I think just that we're already really starting to see the effects of climate change um, firsthand. It's imp- impacting our daily lives. Well, maybe in, say, in southern Ontario, we're not really seeing it, even though it's still there. You know, we have severe storms, especially our winters are starting to be very harsh. And this is all because of climate change. But I think we're starting to get used to it and we're not really thinking of um, how it's going to keep building and progressing if we don't take action. So where did your journey, I see on Facebook that you are <laughs> active kind of in environmentalism as well as the Indigenous mm-hmm. Students Association promotes climate strikes, has different workshops on zero waste. So where did your journey into environmentalism begin? I feel like through um, really starting to focus my studies on the land and our relationship with the land and um, how much it can give to us and how we need to give back that's where I really started to think about how we're really not taking care of it and that's where it really started to bother me so um, for the Indigenous Student Association Association this year I created an environmental projects coordinator position and this position also has a seat on student energy which is a new student collective here Um, it's a charter and student energy is also um, across the world they have different chapters so they now have a seat on this, and I, I actually attended a conference. It was called the Seven Gen Youth Summit, and it was the first of its kind, and it brought Indigenous youth from all over Canada together to talk about sustainability and clean energy. Mm-hmm. I think that's what really sparked something in me to realize how you can have an impact in this and where you can find your place. And it was just 
really amazing to meet all these people, and that's actually where I ended up meeting um, Serena Mendizil. She is one of the founders of Student Energy here, and I wanted ISA to really have a part of that. So also um, we have Danielle Nicolardi, who's now in that position. They're doing an amazing job. So that's kind of where I saw ISA having a voice in that. I was recently fortunate enough to attend the Toxic Tour in Sarnia's Chemical Valley, which is actually where 40% of Canada's petrochemical industry is situated. So there are 60 industrial facilities within this 25-kilometer radius of the Amjanong lands. And throughout the tour, many physical health problems related to the pollutants present were mentioned. So miscarriages, chronic headaches, asthma, even cancer rates. And that being said, there was little research or mention of the mental health impact of being in such an industrialized location and such a high-risk location as well. Do you think that privilege has something to do with a community's ability to make the connection between climate change and mental health? And perhaps if we were being forced to deal with health concerns and the physical risks of our environment on a daily basis, like the individuals living in the Chemical Valley and on the Amjanong lands, we might not be able to consider the mental health component as much as we have the privilege of doing so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, actually. I don't think mental health is actually usually um, talked about in the discussion around climate change. But you see the rising rates of like depression and suicide and how depression will actually, I think, build up to be the leading cause of death and be one of the... It's already one of the most debilitating diseases and that's why a lot of people can't work. And this is rising, so I think there's definitely some kind of affiliation with climate change. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about mental health in communities, there's so many different contributors to why some people really struggle in community, but but like I said, um, we are already, we do face the impacts of climate change more than others. Um, for the community of Amjanong, for example, it does kind of go just beyond physical health. I know when I was there, um, I was there for a meeting, but I also received a tour and he was kind of talking about how one of their traditional burial grounds, there was a factory built right next to it and how this factory leaks into their traditional burial grounds. So that's their that's their ancestors and that's just those lands are being polluted and that's and that was upsetting for them and they were trying to fight to have that changed, but really what can you do? And um, from my understanding I believe that it was because of their Indian agent that this happened and why so many um, why the industrialization grew to what it was is because their Indian agent, I believe, was profiting off of it. And he basically sold out their land and wasn't really honest with them about what was happening. And again, yeah, a lot of Indian agents and just a lot of even treaty makers, they did that. They weren't honest. So how do you kind of find that you're able to stay positive and to look at a, a positive way of kind of thinking about all the different uh, climate issues, but also just issues of injustice um, when it comes to dealing with different communities? Like, what's what's the way that you kind of have found to, you, you're able to mm-hmm. stay positive? That's true. It is exhausting work, and it's a lot of our people who are in this field really struggle with burnout and having too much put on them because it's such a, such a big challenge to try and tackle. But I think staying positive, um, I think Indigenous people are really known for their resiliency, and it's something that's really celebrated, um, just kind of when you think about all the wrongdoings that were done against us, but still, you know, we have our ceremonies and we have our gatherings and celebrations. It's really amazing to kind of be part of that. Um, like I know right now, 
I'm just volunteering at NAMR and our, our friendship center. And it's one of the biggest ones in Canada, actually. It's a really huge friendship center um, for Indigenous people and offers so much programming. And we see like a lot of youth coming out to that and volunteering and a lot of community. I think it's like like hundreds of people show up to this haunted house. So it's just things like that. It's the little things that really make it rewarding and just seeing there's also time for celebration. It's not just, even though maybe your programming is dealing with heavy topics and you see like a lot of mental health problems and you still see a lot of, you know, abuse and suffering, but like you're also still celebrating the positives and you bring youth out to come laugh and you see the improvement in youth and it's just kind of things like that. I'm very, myself, I'm very youth focused in my work. So that's, I think, where it's worth it is where you're seeing the improvement already and you're seeing youth with higher graduation rates and youth who are going on like like myself and to go to university and who are still trying to bring back their traditional teachings and what they're learning and you know to fight the system so I really have yeah. hope <laughs> I think that's what there's a big thing is just always having hope and seeing that there is really opportunity for change and looking at where things are already starting to change in a way if that makes sense. I definitely <laughs> feel hope just being in the room with you and kind of hearing everything you're doing mm-hmm. and continue to do um do you think that um the combination of your degree kind of combining psychology with indigenous studies is something that is traditionally done or do you think this is something I think Mm -hmm. it it probably has a lot of benefit to working together and they probably work with each other quite nicely do you think that's something people should be doing more often yeah I think for myself psychology and indigenous studies really go together and I really encourage people who are going into the mental health field or any health field or really any field where you're working with people and you may be working with indigenous people which you most likely will be because you live in Canada, which is, you have you have a relationship with Indigenous people, whether you acknowledge it or not. I really encourage people to at least take a few Indigenous Studies courses and really understand the history because we're not taught that. there's We're not taught that really at all in secondary schools. There's such a gap. And I think that the courses, some of the courses we have at Western, like our Historical Issues and Contemporary Issues courses, taught by D. Lewis, are amazing courses, and those are what I always recommend people to take. And it kind of talks about, it goes way back to the treaties, to kind of what's going on today. And it covers so many issues. So it's a course like that I would really encourage everyone to take. Because, like I said, I guess it's not really fair to us that the education system's failing us. But in university, we have a chance to, I guess, um, in university, we have a chance to, I guess, make our own decisions and make the decision to learn and educate ourselves. Mm-hmm. And in turn, that's going to help people. So for myself, I like to think it's going, it's going to help. It's helping. My, it's not only helping me, but I think it's going to help how I really look at psychology and how I move forward with that. And it's already helped shape how I'm studying already. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been such an honor and a pleasure to to discuss with you, Taya, and to hear your different opinions um, on the theme of uprooted and on. Uh, the environment and the indigenous connection. So thank you so much for being here. Yes, thank you, Jimmy Witch, for having me. This is Julia Albert, and on behalf of the Icon team, I thank you for listening to this episode of Iconocast, the companion podcast to the Iconoclast Collective. I really hope this discussion might encourage you to consider your relationship with the natural environment around you. And I do want to invite you to Iconoclast's launch party, coming up in the end of November. You can find more information on Iconoclast UWO on all social media platforms. This is an exciting opportunity for live performances, as well as the first time that print copies of this issue will be available. Thanks again.